0: Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we welcome back creative radical, journalist, and filmmaker Eleanor Goldfield. We'll talk about the Julian Assange case and much more later in the program. We also welcome back media scholar Nolan Higdon. We'll discuss a new article he wrote with Professor Allison Butler, Time to Put Your Marketing Cap On, Mapping Digital Corporate Media Curriculum in the Age of Surveillance Capitalism. We'll talk about critical and acritical media literacy, as well as corporate media literacy. What are the differences, and why do they matter? Stay tuned for another Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. Welcome to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today on the show, we welcome back Eleanor Goldfield, creative radical journalist and filmmaker. Her reporting and work has appeared on Free Speech TV, RT America, Mint Press News, Roar, Popular Resistance, Truth Dig, and more. Eleanor is one of the 2020 recipients of the Women and Media Award presented by the Women's Institute for Freedom of the Press. She's currently a board member at the Media Freedom Foundation. And of course, that's what oversees us here at Project Censored. Eleanor's first documentary, Hard Road of Hope, covers past and present radicalism in the resource colony known as West Virginia. Also, ever more in the news these days, as Eleanor will give us an update on what's happening there. Well, thus far, the film has garnered international praise, a Best Feature Length Documentary Award and Best Woman Filmmaker Award, and has official selection laurels in 13 film festivals, including the Con Independent. Currently, Eleanor Goldfield is the host of the podcast, Act Out, and the co-host of the podcast, Common Censored, along with Lee Camp, as well as the Silver Threads podcast with Carla Bergman, all three of which are available on iTunes, Spotify, etc. And we, of course, may even talk about Spotify later in our conversation, as it's also in the news of late. Eleanor Goldfield, thank you so much for taking time out of your extraordinarily busy and active schedule to rejoin us on the Project Censored show. Well, thanks so much
1: for having me and your very busy schedule.
0: This is all all part of it. And as Andy Lee Roth and I always say at the project, we don't know anybody that's not, not hustling particularly people that are really trying to do the good kind of work, the social justice work, work on press freedom and so forth, that you do as well. And why don't we just start right there, because I know that you have been very ear to the ground on the case of Julian Assange, the extradition trial. Kevin Costola writes over at shadowproof.com that the British high court has opened the door for Assange to appeal To the Supreme Court and WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange prevailed in his effort to obtain certification from the British High Court of Justice, which would allow him to appeal their prior decision to the Supreme Court. And Kevin Costola writes under the law, the court must determine that the request for an appeal involves a quote point of law. That is of public importance. And of course, Eleanor Goldfield, why we're again talking about the case of Julian Assange is because A, it's not really talked about in the corporate media. B, when it is, it's very skewed and biased against him. And C, his case actually goes right to the core or the heart of the significance importance of a free press as journalist and publisher. So Eleanor, I know you've been very active in this and you've been doing some things around it lately. Could you please update our listeners on some things that are happening?
1: Yeah, absolutely, Mickey. I mean, as you pointed out, what happens to Julian, what is happening to Julian is very indicative of our ability to access a free press and free speech. And just looking at what's happening to Julian, you can pretty much tell that we don't have access to those things, not in the kind of democratic way that we should have access to them. Basically, the 21st of January. There was an action outside of the Department of Justice, the ironically named Department of Justice here in Washington, D.C., basically to continue to spread the word about what's happening with Julian and also to call out the Department of Justice for its continued harassment and torture of Julian Assange, who, again, is not a U.S. citizen. So this also not just setting a precedent for the, the idea of free press and free speech, but the precedent of going after someone who's not a U.S. citizen under U.S. law and basically claiming that they're guilty of espionage, which riddle me this, how can you be guilty of espionage if it's not your country? (laughs) Highly bizarre and highly fascist. So this precedent that's being set covers so many aspects of law, but also of our ability to access any kind of freedom, even just outside of speech and press.
0: It's really pretty remarkable, and again, Assange faces 18 charges. He was expelled from the Ecuadorian embassy in April of 2019, and 17 of the 18 charges are actually under the Espionage Act. As you just noted, ironically, even though he's Australian, he was living in the Ecuadorian embassy. We, of course, have subsequently discovered that the CIA had many different plots to
1: actually assassinate him. It basically really ties in ironically to what WikiLeaks and Assange put out there for us to access that information, which, by the way, is vital because it's fueled movements. I know a lot of people will say, "Okay, well, I'm like an environmental activist. Why should I care? Well, our climate movements have been fueled quite literally by information that WikiLeaks has put out there for the people. And so it's not just, oh, some drone strikes that WikiLeaks threw out there. It is really across issues and really highlights the intersectionality of issues and the complete lack of transparency of our government. And by the way, many others, people like to highlight that Assange is the enemy of the U.S. empire, but he exposed governments around the world, including Russia and China. So you can't just say that, oh, he's going after the U.S. No, what Assange and WikiLeaks are going after is the truth. And that is why he is so dangerous. And that is why he's being tortured. And that's why the CIA was literally trying to plot to kill him and why it's so, I think I I spoke about this last time I was on your show, Mickey, that it's hilarious that right after this came out that the CIA had put out basically like death threats against Assange and death plots. The U.S. argued in court against Assange that we're going to totally treat him well. What makes you think that we wouldn't treat him well?
0: The absurdity of this on the face of it, it should be laughed out of court. He should be out of prison to get back to his life, his fiance, his family, and actually go back to doing the significant, important work that he has done. That also, since we're pointing out hypocrisies here, the corporate media in the United States that simultaneously uh, throws him under the bus also benefited from the information that was leaked to him. Many of these institutions that won't support him actually had won Pulitzer Prizes for the reporting they did based on the information that was leaked to him that he published
1: use it for your own purposes and then stay very quiet so that empire doesn't come after you. It's so hypocritical, it's so horrific to watch so-called journalists stay absolutely silent about what's being done to Julian Assange when as you pointed out they themselves have have risen to, you know, fame, fortune and power by using that same information. It's it's absolutely grotesque and I mean, I will say one thing. I recommend folks check out this article because I think it's a ray of hope, an array of light, and it also sheds some more light on the goings-on of the the judicial system in, in England. Craig Murray wrote a piece for Consortium News about a potential backdoor exit for the British government that I think is really interesting, and it's a bit heavy on legalese, so I don't claim to fully understand it myself, but basically it's a technicality that would allow the British judicial system to basically let Assange go without having to go up against the U.S. empire and highlight the fact that the U.S. empire is torturing, will torture, and very possibly murder Assange. So kind of like a way for the British government to play nice with the U.S., a very strong ally, and also not have to condemn Julian Assange to death at the same time. That is a ray of light there. And of course, the ability to appeal is powerful, although it's time-consuming. And so Julian has already suffered a stroke because of the torture that he's been dealing with in prison, which, by the way, is the prison where they put terrorists. They talk about it in in Bond films, right? That's where they put Bond villains. Like, I'm not even kidding. You watch a, a Bond film and they mention Belmarsh as the heinous place where they put Bond villains. And there is a journalist there who's only guilty of telling the truth.
0: Allegedly innocent till proven guilty, but being punished as if they were already guilty.
1: In solitary confinement which every large medical body and the UN has said anything more than 15 days, I believe, in solitary confinement is torture. And it's something that the U.S. does routinely to people who are guilty of everything from stealing a sweater to, of course, telling the truth. So it's absolutely grotesque what's going on, but again, there are rays of light here. But again, it's it is time consuming, and that's why it's so important to keep talking about this. Because with our news cycles being what they are, five minutes is even too long on an issue. So to continue talking about this, to continue having events outside the DOJ, to continue having these conversations that bring Julian to the front, because he can so easily get lost in the back and in the, in the the din of other of the other news stories.
0: Eleanor Goldfield, I'm really glad that you brought that up because I know that some listeners of the program may be saying to themselves, Didn't you just do a show on Assange? And, you know, wasn't Eleanor on not long ago? Or didn't you mention Kevin Costola or Shadowproof before? And you just mentioned Craig Murray and Consortium News. You know, but these, you know, you folks and these folks are the ones that keep reminding us of the significance and the importance of Assange and a project censored, you know, that's one of our central missions. And so to not talk about the Assange case to me would be a gross disservice to the significance of that case if we didn't continue to keep up with it and learn what's happening. We mentioned, too, that the corporate hypocritical press in the United States both condemned or ignored and then benefited from the information Assange disseminated. Reporters Without Borders is an organization, however, that has come. They welcome the high court's decision. They have supported the Assange case. Organizations in the United States, like Pan America, however, as Chris Hedges noted, they've been conspicuously silent, So I want to remind our listeners again that that is exactly why we're here talking about the Julian Assange case again, because even the liberal press or the so-called liberal class in the United States seems to have a hard time getting around to talking about the Assange case, even though they have no problem talking about the gross injustices done to so many others around issues of censorship and persecution. So Eleanor Goldfield, I'm very glad that you reminded us about why this is so significant and important. And- I wanted to use this opportunity to segue, if we could, into another issue that you're extremely involved in. You mentioned earlier how these organizations, the news organizations, get it both ways. One of the stories we did last year was on Monsanto Intelligence Centers. The reason I remembered it when you were talking was that they actually created something called an intelligence center, targeted journalists and activists. It's not just the CIA, it's corporations, transnational corporations that actually have centers targeting journalists, specifically ones around environmental justice, climate justice, that's kind of what triggered it for me, is because you, were, you began talking about that, like, well, why should people in the environmental movement care about Julian Assange? Well, because this is a place where they get information that fuels that, and then corporations like Monsanto join forces with other government groups to try to silence not only Assange and the sources of information, but then go back and silence environmental activists, climate justice activists. And it's not just, you know, with companies like Monsanto, this dovetails into your film and the topic of your film and some updates you have. Your film that I mentioned in the introduction, Hard Road of Hope, it's a very important work that covers past and present radicalism, again, in what you call the resource colony known as West Virginia, also a place where Joe Manchin is a senator and is always in the news these days for being an obstructionist in the Democratic Party. But Eleanor Goldfield, let's connect the dots here. You have some updates on some things that are actually happening in West Virginia that aren't much in the news. One second, though, I'm going to have to interrupt momentarily to remind everyone you're listening to The Project Censored Show on Pacific Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff, and we are joined by creative radical journalist and filmmaker Eleanor Goldfield. We will continue this stellar conversation with Eleanor Goldfield after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we are honored to welcome back Eleanor Goldfield, creative radical journalist and filmmaker. Her reporting has appeared on Free Speech TV, RT America, Mint Press News, Popular Resistance, Truth Dig, and more. We were just talking about the topic of her... First documentary award winning hard road of hope that covers past and present radicalism in the resource colony known as West Virginia and Eleanor Goldfield. Let's continue where we left off about what is actually going on in West Virginia and another pipeline issue there.
1: The Mountain Valley Pipeline, folks might not be familiar with it because it's something that kind of like the Assange case has been going on for a very long time. It's an environmental fight that, like so many others, kind of reaches the surface of media interest once people have already been battling it for many years. And the Mountain Valley Pipeline is no different. But something that just happened a few days ago and roughly the the 26th of January is that the Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit issued a decision that basically says that the Mountain Valley Pipeline cannot go through the Jefferson National Forest. And this actually goes against a previous decision by a 2012 Forest Service planning rule. So that gives you some idea of how long this has been going on, and that's not even the full extent of the time. But basically, the decision was made that the Mountain Valley Pipeline would cause irreparable harm to this forest and therefore cannot cross it, which highlights the whole point that pipelines are risk whatever they're crossing, r- whether it be a national forest, whether it be a body of water, what have you. Pipelines always leak, whether they're oil, gas, what have you. They are always dangerous and a detriment, really an irreparable detriment to the ecosystems which they destroy and which they cross. You know, we see this with Line 3, which before it was ever even constructed had already leaked toxic materials into these very fragile ecosystems in the middle of our country. And so wherever they are, whatever kind of pipeline they are, they are extremely dangerous and really not at all worth it. Certainly not from a climatic standpoint, but definitely not either from a financial standpoint. I mean, the amount of subsidies that have to be poured into oil and gas, and of course, things like coal as well, every year just to keep them afloat is absurd. And yet we are literally pouring billions of dollars into our own homicide when there are so many better options, so many better renewable options to look at. And the Mountain Valley Pipeline is just one example of that. It goes through parts of West Virginia, Virginia, and North Carolina. And people have been battling it on the ground for years now. And it really just goes to show you that the pressure to continue down this homicidal path is so great, even when it doesn't even make any capitalist sense anymore.
0: (laughs) That's a head scratcher. They're even basically just like shooting themselves in the, in the foot, so to speak. Worse than that, actually. But we mentioned Manchin a couple of times. We're not hearing about the stuff that you're talking about, but there's no shortage of corporate media coverage about Joe Manchin in the Senate.
1: In Joe Manchin, it's purely a surface debate. It's, oh, he should have run as a Republican, and, oh, he's being really annoying with the Build Back Better bill, which I could go down that rabbit hole, too. Biden is out Trumping Trump. Uh, he's got 7,000 people, more people in detention than Trump did. Uh, but I guess at least he's not Trump. So hooray for that. The discussions about Manchin are really surface. And if you look at people in West Virginia, the folks that I've talked to since Manchin's been in office, they're like, yeah, well, I'm not surprised. This is exactly what we get from both sides. And incidentally, if you look at what West Virginia wanted in 2020, they were very heavily for Bernie. And then when that was thrown out, they went for Trump and people might scratch their heads at that one too. But when you talk to people from West Virginia, they said, well, I appreciated that Bernie was talking to us. And then Trump spoke to us. He actually came and talked to us. Neither Clinton nor Biden could, they just thought it was a throwaway state with throwaway people. And That's exactly how the Democrats feel about places like West Virginia. And so when you have someone like Trump saying, I'm going to get you your job back, whether that's in coal or whatever, if you're going to feed a family, of course, that speaks to you. And Bernie was the only other person speaking to that. So you can see where the path goes from someone like Bernie, who, by the way, is not even that left, to someone like Trump. And I think it's important that we recognize that and recognize that Manchin is really just as much a Democrat as he is a Republican, because both parties view places like West West Virginia as a throwaway state with throwaway people. Well,
0: it's the corporate party, the fossil fuel party. Manchin is certainly a representative of those interests, despite the fact that the unions and others in West Virginia, I believe, have overwhelmingly asked him to get back to the table and stop obstructing. Isn't that right? Yeah. Pretty amazing. And again, the Project Censored, this is a classic case of something that we call news abuse. It's also propaganda where the news media will cover, well, we're talking about West Virginia and Joe Manchin, but then they don't talk about any of the actual people, any of the actual issues or anything that you explore in your film or any of the things that you just mentioned, right? And so that's something that's pretty frustrating. But again, this is why the, it is so important to have independent media, local media, alternative voices that have a platform so that people's voices are heard on these issues. Now, we want to shift gears here because you are knowledgeable about a great many things, and you also have some unique perspectives to offer. Right now, because of inflation and because who knows what's happening with COVID and that narrative's falling apart, now it's time to wag the dog and start poking the bear in Russia. We need to get back to bareback Putin in Russia and Ukraine. And I wonder if Joe Biden has any interests in Ukraine back to the Obama presidency. So you have an
1: interesting perspective here on what's happening because of your Swedish background as well. Is that right? I grew up partially in Sweden. I'm a, a Swedish citizen. And Sweden, by the way, is not part of NATO, but you wouldn't know it based on how they're acting. It's also interesting that Biden's numbers are in the toilet and the economy is tanking. So what do you do? You Poke a bear and you potentially try to start World War III. War is profit, and you try to unite people around a common enemy, and all of a sudden your approval rating goes up. So, I mean, what's going on with Russia and Ukraine right now? And as uh, comedian Lee Camp put it, the US is basically yelling at Russia for moving troops inside their own country. It would be like if Russia was yelling at us for moving troops to Montana. It's none of your business. We should also point out that NATO only exists to poke the bear of Russia, like that it's purely it exists. Cold War institution that should have been dismantled
0: in the 90s.
1: Absolutely, it exists to be on the offense, never on the defense, kind of like the Department of Defense never does any defense. <laughs> and from the Swedish perspective, what's really horrifying and what's so frustrating to me as, a, as both a, a Swedish citizen and a US citizen is that the Swedish government is really just bending over backwards to kiss the butt of empire on this issue. So Sweden is mobilizing troops. And yes, for those who are like, wait, I thought Sweden was always neutral. We do this kind of seesawing thing, but ultimately we hide behind the skirts of empire on this And you have Denmark just to the south of Sweden. They are a NATO member and they've already pledged 700 million crowns, which is roughly $70 million and troops to go to the Ukrainian border. And the Ukraine and Russia just met in Paris, I believe. And the only agreement they could come to was that they'd have another meeting in Berlin. And you have at the same time around these meetings, you have people that should really have nothing to do with these meetings. (laughs) And that includes Sweden and Denmark and the Swedish press is saying Things like, oh, well, you know, it's very important that we're a part of this because the ramifications are so great. And I'm like, that makes no sense. It has nothing to do with you. And this is, it's just such a classic echo of the U.S., you know, what we do around the world, whether that's South America or the Middle East. Oh, well, the ramifications are great. Not if you just leave. If you just stopped putting boots on the ground and sticking Uncle Sam where he doesn't belong, then the ramifications wouldn't be huge. The ramifications are only huge because you cause these ripples with your bombs and your support of these Nazis, in the case of the Ukraine and other terrorist organizations around the globe. So the ramifications, are huge because you see so many European nations backing the U.S. as opposed to standing up as a unified front and saying, no, this is really none of the U.S., none of anybody else's business. We're stepping back.
0: Let's also take another look at one of the elephants in the room here, whether figuratively or literally Democrat, Republican. As Dan Ellsberg calls the doomsday machine, we seem to forget the reason NATO was in existence in the first place was allegedly part of this detente thing, mutually assured destruction, because Russia has a lot of nuclear weapons pointed at us. And so this isn't just sort of like, hey, let's have a skirmish in Ukraine. This could escalate to ending life as we know it on Earth
1: It reminds me of a very dangerous drug addict. You've had that hit of going after smaller countries like Cuba and Venezuela and Chile and Argentina. And you're like, I just need a bigger rush. I need to go after somebody who has nuclear weapons. Like, that's what it sounds like to me. It's like, you just need a bigger hit of this, you know, this uh, hegemonic imperialism to get high off of, to try and push the economy, to try and push your approval rating. As you pointed out, without really taking into consideration that this could be the last move that you or any other human ever make, And I should say, like, I'm no fan of Putin, but you don't have to be to look at this and be like, could you just, let him do his thing because it's not great, but it's has nothing to do with you. That only has to do with the Russian people and back off because I don't see any Russian bases in Mexico or Canada. Meanwhile, I see U.S. bases all over Europe continuously trying to poke Russia into doing something horrific that, again, could be the last thing that any of us ever see.
0: Well, Eleanor Goldfield, let's take this addicted to empire and let's segue. We got a couple minutes left from addicted to war. Let's go to the needle and the dam Done And let's go to rockin' in the free world with Neil Young's squabble with Spotify over Joe Rogan. I'm not a real follower or fan of Joe Rogan, but certainly a lot of folks have been uproarious about some of the things that Rogan does. The corporate media is, of course, more or less sour grapes jealous that he gets 11 million viewers and they can barely fill the back seats on some nights. You know, the latest flap is Young was saying he wanted Spotify to take down his songs from a catalog I believe he no longer even owned. Certainly his right to suggest he didn't want it there. But it was over the misinformation that is being spread by Joe Rogan and his guests. And, of course, this is sort of a a boycott censorship kind of thing. Looks like it's kind of backfired already because Spotify said, bye-bye, Neil. But this is how this cancel culture issue around censorship works in the United States. And we can't really ever get into how prior restraint, of course, doesn't apply to Spotify as a private company. Uh, Certainly as an artist, it's someone's right to say, hey, you can't have my stuff, et cetera, et cetera. But this attempt to silence or bully people because we disagree with what they say, how do you see what's happening or playing out in there? Because, again, I know that you are very attuned to issues of media censorship. You do the Common Censored podcast. You work with
1: us at The Project. Neil Young is the fact that he's popping his head up just to complain about Joe Rogan. I mean, there are fascist metal bands on Spotify that like literally their lyrics are talking about how we should go out and murder black people. Where's Neil Young on that one?
0: It's almost coattailing in some some capacity, given Rogan's popularity. And again, I'll say this out loud as a disclaimer that ought be unnecessary. I don't agree with everything Rogan's doing. I don't agree with everything his guests say. But it's a slippery slope when we start seeing people crawl out of the woodwork to say no more of that or you're out. Again, this shows really the power that these tech platforms have that they should not have in the first place. That's really the issue that the media is not talking about.
1: And I think people on the left or really anywhere on the spectrum that are like, yeah, we should get rid of Joe Rogan. Well, censorship doesn't just go after the people that you don't like. It's not a gun that you have control over. It's pointed by the people who will and are pointing it at you as well. This goes back even to, you know, uh, a few years ago when Alex Jones was taken off of all these platforms and everybody on the left was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Goodbye and good riddance. And I was like, but hold your applause, please, because I don't like Alex Jones, but that's not the point here. The point is that censorship, basically the forced silencing of perspectives that you don't agree with, no matter how dumb they are, is such a slippery slope. And it means that they have not only the ability, but then the public support. To go after anybody that they deem a threat, which circling back to our initial topic, Julian Assange, you can go after anybody for any reason and you can cloak it in anything because now you have that public support and you can just point back and and say, hey, but look, you were you were for it when we went after Alex Jones.
0: Let's use logic and reason. Transparently source facts is why we need independent journalism. That's why we need people like Assange and WikiLeaks. And that's why we need people to stand up and support freedom of expression and fight against censorship even when it's affecting someone that we don't like. You know, I was just in the, the extraordinary classroom of Facebook where some folks were trying to school me about why the New York Times is a great alternative to this. And I mean, my question was, OK, so Joe Rogan disseminates some misinformation. The counter to it is like, well, so does the New York Times.
1: And the New York Times has started wars.
0: WMDs, their failure to cover climate crisis, fossil fuels, their failure to call out what was known about harmful products, whether it was opioids or asbestos. or This goes back into the early part of the 20th century. So the bigger point here that, again, I was trying to make is like, well, if we are going to get involved in in silencing people because they spread misinformation, then let's, quoting George Carlin, let's not have a double standard here. One standard will do just fine, if that's actually what we're doing. And I realize that some folks don't think that's popular, and I am called lots of names and all that kind of stuff. But again, that's no stand-in for a real argument, and it's certainly no stand-in for supporting something as important, free press principles and the right of free expression. And in my view, and certainly the view of the project, the antidote to speech we don't like is more speech we do, and we need to keep the conversation going. Eleanor Goldfield, speaking of that, we are out of time. So before we leave, please share with our listeners... Where they can find your work and where they can follow the things that you're doing.
1: If folks want to learn more about the stuff that I do, uh, including, you know, music, film, journalism, check out artkillingapathy.com and you can follow me online at radical Eleanor. And Eleanor Goldfield, a website for your film? HardRoadOfHope.com. And I'll just tag one thing onto the end of that, Mickey. It's that free press is so important. Media literacy. And the work that Project Censors does on that front is so vital because it allows people to look at things like Joe Rogan or Alex Jones and say, well, that's just wrong, instead of having to shut it down. So, again, I think media literacy is the antidote, not duct tape over the mouths of the people.
0: Thank you so much for all that you're doing, particularly around freedom of expression, free speech. And all the work you do, your music, your art, your film, journalism, all incredible. So thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to join us today, Eleanor Goldfield. Up next on the Project Censored show, we welcome back Dr. Nolan Higdon. It's going to be time to put on your marketing cap, mapping digital corporate media curriculum in the age of surveillance capitalism. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In this segment of the program, we welcome back to the show media scholar Dr. Nolan Higdon to talk about an article published recently in the Review of Education, Pedagogy, and Cultural Studies. The article, Time to Put Your Marketing Cap on Mapping Digital Corporate Media Curriculum in the Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Nolan Higdon wrote this with Dr. Allison Butler. Nolan Higdon is a lecturer of education at the University of California, Santa Cruz author of several articles and books on critical news literacy. Most recently, United States of Distraction, which I co-authored with him for City Lights, The Anatomy of Fake News, A Critical News Literacy Education. Nolan has another book out very recently that we talked about called The Podcaster's Dilemma. And then, of course, he and I also have another book coming out next month on Rutledge, Let's Agree to Disagree. Nolan is a regular guest here. Nolan, another reason we have you on is that you are quite prolific in your publications these days around news media literacy, around issues of censorship, surveillance capitalism, and so on. And this article is actually quite fascinating. Time to put your marketing cap on mapping digital corporate media curriculum in the age of surveillance capitalism. So we're certainly going to be talking about critical media literacy, and then we'll be segueing talking more about propaganda, censorship, and then before we finish our conversation, I'm I'm going to uh, talk to you a little bit about your thoughts on the latest controversy around Spotify. Just spoke with Eleanor Goldfield about that and ended the segment on it, so certainly like to get your take on some of that as well. Nolan, welcome back to the show.
2: Thanks for having me on, and hello to the whole Project Censored universe. Great to be back.
0: It's always fantastic to have you, and there's always stuff to talk about. I found this piece remarkable, and it starts with an introduction that spoke to me personally. Alison Butler writing, in the 1980s, in an effort to increase brand awareness and sales, the Campbell's Soup Company engaged in at least two sponsored projects that brought their product in front of schoolchildren – I was in a school where this happened, where we had to cut off the labels of the Campbell's soup cans and we would turn them in and supposedly you get prizes and you talk about that in the article. Um, but it was really about corporate branding and propaganda, and the commercialization, hyper-commercialization of public education. Nolan, tell us about this.
2: This is about branding, you know. Research has long shown that the younger... A person is when you can capture them so the younger audiences it's best to capture them and give them a positive image of your brand and they'll carry that for the rest of their lives so schools have always been a profitable place for corporations to get students to have a positive image of their brand so they can hook them for life rightly though there has been pushback from parents and the public about how the classroom should not be a space of corporate exploitation and so what Dr. Butler and myself wanted to do is we wanted to explore not only the history, which we did a great job. and I really have to give Allison credit. Allison went through and did uh, the majority of the, the scholarship on the history, uh, including the Campbell's program, as you mentioned. These processes are still occurring today, and big tech has added a new dimension. They're not only trying to get in the classroom for the purposes of branding, which they are, but they're also trying to get in the classroom because they want to get access to data, And by having access to the classroom, they can collect student data, teaching data. So it's a very lucrative opportunity for big tech to get into the classroom. And so we wanted to tell that story and also look at the actual impact it had on the education itself. So some people may say like, well, if we have to trade data for certain educational content, maybe that's something I'm willing to sacrifice. But what Allison and I showed in the piece is that the educational content that these corporations are providing is highly defined by a very select ideology, one that tries to to preach individualism, preach corporatism, stay away from critiquing systems as they are, and instead sort of make people feel like by just using these tools, they've accomplished something. And it also teaches them, and I think this is, we saw this in a recent story about Amazon. It also teaches them that if you have a problem, you can appeal to big tech to solve it. So it's this very techno-utopian ideology that students are being indoctrinated with under the auspices of this 21st century education.
0: So there's a lot to unpack here. This runs into so many overlapping issues, whether it's native advertising, product placement. And now, of course, you're adding this other interesting digital era element to it, and that's capturing information, capturing data. And then, of course, also, as you mentioned, with branding, it's sort of a part of almost an indirect or not so hidden part of the curriculum. But it's making these products and these companies, software companies, it's putting these brands out there in front of students so that they carry on with them or follow through with them, even if it maybe is a secondary issue as part of the curriculum.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and just to put it in a different kind of context, you know, we didn't do this on purpose, but at, at the time we were writing the article, there were all these news articles about parents and groups who felt threatened by critical race theory in schools. Their their concern was that teachers are indoctrinating students. It's interesting that there's so much of an uproar about that, but there was no debate about corporations indoctrinating students in the classroom. So maybe I would take some of these people who are afraid of CRT, maybe I'd take them a little more seriously if they had the same sort of rejection of corporate indoctrination in the classroom.
0: And that seems to be pretty writ large here, and you lay that out in the article. So one of the things that you discuss earlier on in the article, and we've actually talked about this with you on the program before, this gets into how this is actually taught. Right now we're talking about media literacy. And you've talked about this for a long time, we've talked about this for some time. There's different approaches to media literacy. And one of the approaches is what we call critical media literacy. The other is sort of generically branded as quote media literacy or what you refer to as a critical media literacy in the article. Could you help our listeners understand what's the difference between these rather different approaches? to media literacy
2: education? It's a great question. Those of us who advocate for a critical approach, we want a classroom where students not only learn how to use these tools, these tools being things like the internet, or a laptop, a tablet, television, whatever it may be, but they also look at the process by which messages are constructed. So who are the producers of media? What are their conflicts of interest? How do those interests affect the media that's produced? How do they shape the message that's told? How do audiences respond? We think these are important questions for students to ask as they engage with media. Our acritical folks, those are the folks who do not want a critical approach, they think those questions are politically biased. Instead, they want to focus on students being able to determine, say, like, truth from falsehood, look at the aesthetic value, learn how to use the tools, things like that. And those acritical folks have long been advocates for taking corporate money to get their pedagogical approach in the classroom. So they take corporate money to make sure that that critical approach can be taught in the classroom. And many folks dating way before I was even a student have long argued that corporate money has an influence on the type of media literacy that is taught. And these people have a critical folks who argue for years, no, that's not true. They don't tell us what to do. It doesn't have an effect. So what we did in this study was we took the a critical corporate funded media literacy content and we analyzed it to determine does the corporate money have an influence on it and we can say without a doubt from our study that yes it absolutely does it is a very narrow form of media literacy it is pro corporation it puts the problems that arise from media use they put it on the user they never challenge the ways in which the corporation contribute or amplify those problems and so for us, it, it's just an illustration of the problem with corporate funding of education and yet another reason why we need to add critical frameworks to our media education in the United States.
0: One of the key examples that you point out in the beginning of the piece um, with Allison Butler highlights one of the larger or, I guess, better known media literacy organizations, the National Association for Media Literacy Education, otherwise known as NAMLI. This is one of the groups that takes funding, as you put in the article, from companies like Nickelodeon, Google, Facebook, Twitter. And so what are you finding in this analysis? Because again, I'm also familiar with that argument that the argument put forward from the acritical side of things is that somehow the critical media scholars are biased because they're looking behind the scenes at the power structures and the influences and claiming that they aren't subject to that. But clearly that's not true, and your article goes on to prove that. So could you give a couple examples or outline for our listeners exactly how you analyzed this and, and what you found?
2: So one of the things we, we found is that the content itself really emphasizes marketable skills for a training force. So it changes the classroom to focus on how you could make money in big tech. And already there, it sort of sets the, the classroom goal is how can we get into the industry of big tech And it distracts from questions about how we challenge big tech. It also narrowly defines civics activity as happening in online communities. So it makes it seem like you have to have a digital presence constantly to be civically engaged, which, of course, is false. It also sets standards of civility in online spaces, and it puts it on the individual. So as the individual, you're the ones who are supposed to make the online environment civil. But those of us who are critical recognize that the internet it could be anything, but it's constructed in the way these corporations want. And these corporations privilege divisive content that that emphasizes fear and hate. So they've created an arena that is very divisive in nature, conflict-ridden in a destructive way. And then the curriculum puts it on the individual. like You're supposed to solve this ginormous problem that big tech has caused. And if it's causing you any problems, the blame should be on the user, not on the corporation. So those are some of the larger ways that we saw connections between the pedagogy and the interests of big tech.
0: So you mentioned something pretty interesting here. You mentioned divisiveness and these platforms that tend to, and we've written about this, you and I, in in other publications as well. This divisiveness, it's algorithmically programmed, meaning it seems as though that some of these platforms, they thrive or run off of these things where you're sort of put in camps, like you have to make these kind of choices. And of course, capitalism, branding, I mean, that's kind of what that's about too, funneling people into Camp Red, Camp Blue. You're a Pepsi person, someone's a Coke person. That seems to have just have permeated everything in our society. And so how does that factor in to to what you discovered at all? Like Namly taking money from Nickelodeon, from Google, working in cahoots with these folks under the auspices of civic engagement or media literacy. And again, In the last four or five years, you know this well. You wrote the book, Anatomy of Fake News, with people's concern about so-called fake news and propaganda. How does this all feed in? Because there's heightened awareness now around it, and everybody's worried about, oh, media literacy. You know, seriously, when we were doing this even five and ten years ago, you rarely heard the mainstream talking about media literacy. But now it's a big buzz phrase. And so given that there's heightened awareness and concern about this, Has that led more and more money flowing into groups like Namly? And if so, what's the impact of that on the discipline, in your opinion?
2: At some level, I have to admit, um, and I I imagine others will, maybe not publicly, that I'm sort of thankful for Donald Trump weaponizing the fake news epithet because it finally drew attention to the work that myself, yourself, and countless others have been doing for decades trying to get this idea, like, we need to teach media literacy skills. So in that sense, Donald Trump sort of did us a favor but even in that that awareness that followed Trump's weaponization, that epithet, there has been a hijacking of it. A lot of corporations have moved into this space promising quick, easy fixes. If you just subscribe to The New York Times, if you just use our fact-checking websites, you'll be more news-literate, which, of course, is totally ridiculous. But those voices have been so loud, they've really tried to quell those of us who've tried to focus on effective classroom practices to make us more media literate. The way that Namly fits in here, I think is particularly interesting. They've really cleaned up in terms of funding off of this fake news moral panic. For decades, they denied the idea these corporations are bad faith actors. They've said, all we do is take the money. You know, we, we don't listen to them. We now know, thanks to the most recent whistleblower from Facebook, that Facebook is actively trying to get into the classroom to get young people hooked on their brand as early as possible. Same thing as Big DePaco, the NFL. This has been used over and over again. And so, of course, Namly is a perfect vehicle. Here's a national organization that some educators trust. So you can get a lot of educators to get direct contact to Facebook content. You can get it directly into the classroom. Namely is one of the organizations that's often called upon to help politicians and policymakers. And so in that way, corporations see Namly is basically just a corporate vehicle to get their content into the classroom. And the post-2016 craze over fake news has made that a lot easier.
0: We're talking with media scholar Nolan Higdon about an article that he has published recently with Allison Butler. It's in the Review of Education, Pedagogy, and Cultural Studies. Time to put your marketing cap on. Mapping digital corporate media curriculum in the age of surveillance capitalism. We'll continue our conversation with Nolan Higdon after this brief musical break. Stay with us. (laughs) Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In this segment of the program today, we welcome back Nolan Higdon, and we're talking about another of his recent publications involving critical media literacy. Again, just a reminder, Nolan is a lecturer of education at University of California, Santa Cruz. He is author of several articles and books on critical news literacy, including United States of Distraction, The Anatomy of Fake News, as well as The Podcaster's Dilemma with Nick Bayham. And we just did a show a few weeks ago on that. And here we are with Nolan again. That's because Nolan is one of the leading scholars in critical media literacy, along with Allison Butler. And Project Censored has a deep commitment and interest in critical media literacy education. And so the things that we're talking about right now are all really important to bring into the classroom. And if you listen to the previous part of the conversation we just had, I hate to use the word competition, but we really are kind of in the marketplace of ideas is in the curriculum and in the classroom. And these big tech companies want to get their products and their brands embedded. Really, I guess that's probably the the interesting word to use. Would you use that word, Nolan Higdon? Embedded in terms of the curriculum, how you want how the a critical corporate branding element of it is really trying to embed itself in the public system.
2: They're not even being really subtle anymore. Vice just broke a story about Amazon in a San Bernardino high school where. They actually had Amazon logos with Amazon phrases all over the walls for students to see. And then they gave students lesson plans, one of which included, how can you incentivize workers to work harder without a bonus or an increase in wage? This was a classroom lesson. And I think what it reveals is the way that corporate America really sees a classroom as an opportunity to indoctrinate students to get into getting used to being exploited workers where they don't resist. Part of the exercise was to undermine organized labor and unions. And so you see this in classrooms from Amazon. And, you know, Amazon is a a major employer already. They've also been busted by the courts for undermining organizing movements, also illegally firing people for trying to organize. And so here they are now in the classroom trying to set up the next generation where they won't even consider organizing because they'll already have a bad taste in their mouth.
0: That just reminded me, and this is mentioned in the article earlier, the overlap and some of the focus in the critical media literacy in many ways does go back through people like Ralph Nader about consumer rights and awareness, and Henry Giroux, obviously, and others. But I just mentioned that word consumer, consume. I recall a line that Mark Crispin Miller, the NYU media scholar, used in our last documentary film on fighting the fake news invasion. He talked about how we, quote, consume news media or consume media. And he took issue with the word consume or as consumers because it also comes with this mindless kind of shopping, buying idea rather than do we actually take it in, think about it, process it, and then react to it? Or are we just blowing it through, right? Just taking it in and wandering off. And it sounds to me too, like what you're talking about, and I love that you call this in the article corporate media literacy content. It's packaged in a way that it, it looks easy. And hey, we did the lesson for you teachers and you're all busy and overworked. And maybe if you're advertising for us on your in your classroom, we'll give you this software. As you mentioned earlier, it's not hidden. I mean, this isn't really any part of a hidden curriculum anymore. It's right in our faces. But I think that's maybe why And I think you and Allison Butler argue this, why we really need uh, critical media literacy, pedagogy, and curriculum to counter this.
2: And to be clear for teachers and schools, it's no secret we've gutted them economically in the last 40 years. And We've written about this in the United States of Distraction. And as a result, they unfortunately have to appeal to these corporations. So it's not that these teachers or schools are necessarily naive or even pernicious actors. They're desperate people who, who care about education, and they've been pushed to this. And it's just another illustration of why cinema and mansion are afraid of the national debts, except for when it comes to Pentagon, we just spent the biggest military uh, budget in history every year, we surpassed the biggest. So we're able to spend that money, but not on education. And so if we're not... Amazon's going to indoctrinate your children. That's who's going to be controlling it if you don't want to control it under a democratic apparatus.
0: Well, we're seeing this more accelerated. And I think another reason that you've been writing about this so much more is because it's permeating almost all facets of our lives. And the media literacy, a critical media literacy actually fosters more of this uncritical usage of these kinds of brands and products, whereas critical media literacy does the exact opposite.
2: Critical media literacy is is all about empowering students to ask questions, to be equal players when it comes to confronting content. The system we have in place right now is, is one largely of indoctrination. Students aren't asked to explore questions of power, and instead, they're asked to regurgitate content from corporate America. And so that's why we push this critical approach, not because I want students at the end of the day to, to up and down agree with everything I say, because at the end of the day, I want students to be able to ask fundamental questions and make us all think, at times make us all uncomfortable. And, and and simply, that's not the education we have right now.
0: Just for our listeners, a reminder, we're speaking with Nolan Higdon, a media scholar. We're speaking about an article, Time to Put Your Marketing Cap on, Mapping Digital Corporate Media Curriculum in the Age of Surveillance Capitalism. He authored with Allison Butler, and we've been talking about the differences between critical and acritical media literacy. Well, let's keep our critical media literacy caps on momentarily here. I know we only have a couple minutes left in this segment, but I put this to Eleanor Goldfield uh, in our earlier segment. Speaking of platforms, corporate platforms and applications on people's phones and so on, Spotify is uh, one of those kind of companies that we could put up there with the Facebooks and the Twitters and and the rest of them, and a lot of people love this platform, and they use it for music. However, like many of these corporate platforms, they not only do a lot of data mining, but they they basically harvest information or harvest products, if you will. Uh, Spotify is not good for artists or musicians in any real way, and that's a real problem. But lately they've been in the hot seat over... The Joe Rogan Podcast, and you just authored a book on podcasting with Nicholas Bayham III, The Podcaster's Dilemma, a very rich academic deep dive into the subject. So I would advise folks, check that out if you're into podcasting. But Rogan has one of the most popular podcasts on. Rogan has a very popular show. Rogan is not a journalist. He is not a scholar. He has this widely popular show that outperforms on a regular basis cable news, network news. He's got a huge following. He also has a penchant for inviting people on the program that have kind of been frozen out of the corporate media. And so there's this jockeying for narrative control and attacking the messenger often that goes on here. But... Recently, there was a huge flap between Neil Young, Spotify, Joe Rogan. we young, who I don't believe even owns his music catalog anymore, if I'm correct about that. But regardless, Neil Young, as an artist, said he didn't want his music on Spotify, and that's his right to determine, I suppose. Interestingly enough, he said, well, either you get rid of me or get rid of Joe Rogan because I don't like the misinformation that he spreads about COVID-19. So this now turns into a marketplace issue of censorship, And Spotify has recently said, bye-bye, Neil Young. So people are in these camps like Joe Rogan, Neil Young. For me, I'm kind of like, why aren't we criticizing what's happening with Spotify? And who gave these big tech platforms the authority to decide what happens in public discourse? Nolan Higdon.
2: I think the real story is not about Joe Rogan or about Neil Young. It's about our refusal to engage in the democratic process and still depend on easy fixes that empower big tech to make hugely influential decisions about our lives. So whether or not you side with Neil Young or Joe Rogan is immaterial to me. It's just like when it comes to issues of hate speech online, whether you're for it or against it, it's immaterial to me. If your solution to any of those problems or conflicts or issues is to empower big tech, I'm not with you. And particularly if you're someone who comes from like the leftist tradition, I can tell you, whatever you empower these institutions, especially those that are not accountable to the democratic process, they're always used against you. And so I'm at sort of a point in my life now where I preach against this empowering to big tech and I try and defend free speech. But I I recognize that so many leftists around me are thinking that big tech is like the second coming of Christ or something, like it's going to create this woke universe And so I'm just sort of sitting back waiting in five, 10 years to be the I told you so guy, because I know already these tools are being used against the left and it's only going to get worse. And, And the irony of it is you have so many folks on the left who are championing their own demise.
0: It's pretty riveting. And if past is prologue, I think in all sincerity, Nolan Higdon, you're already the I told you so guy, uh, especially on this topic. And we just keep seeing that being proven again and again as time goes by. Well, Nolan Higdon, it's a delight to have you back on the program. We've been talking about critical media literacy. And thanks again for your hot take on the latest issue. I'm, I'm very glad that we got to talk about the issue of what Spotify is and represents in big tech. And again, the issue here for us isn't about what side are you on, Neil or Joe Rogan. The side is free speech, democratic process, or a corporate oligarchy. Nolan Higdon, can you share some information about where people can contact you or get in touch with you or learn more about your work?
2: You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Nolan underscore Higdon. And then you can also find me through my university uh, mail and the Critical Media Literacy Conference of the Americas.
0: Thanks, Nolan Higdon, for joining the program today. Thanks a lot, Mickey. Not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians. You've been listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio, established in 2010 by myself and Peter Phillips. I'm Mickey Huff, the executive producer and host of the program. Anthony Fest is our longtime senior producer. The Project Censored show airs on roughly 50 stations around the United States from Maui to New York. To learn more about our work or find any of our previous archive programs, go to projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And be sure to subscribe to the official Project Censored show on your cell phone's podcast application. Please feel free to share your feedback about our work at projectcensored.org. And last but not least, thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Stay well. We'll see you next time. Think about time, time, think crimes perpetrated by the criminal minds, political ties,
1: of lies, alibis, disguise, another guise of democracy, politics, and the apocalypse, got the skies like an ominous. So the ocean burn bright with waves full of poison, genocide wars, fall for little poison, the weapons
0: manufactured paid for wide taxes while the bridges and the levies and the mines collapsing All the prisons, building capacity citizens In the times for the master thief, combined cock conquer, steal a masterpiece, open your eyes and realize what's happening Times when an out the reach, all potential fame At the table, then you're probably on the menu. We got that level properly.